You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show. Could a bill forcing Theresa May to get permission from Parliament to extend Article 50 stop Britain from leaving the European Union without a Brexit deal? Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan challenges the results of local elections in Istanbul and Ankara after important wins by opposition candidates. My guests John Everard and Joy Lodico will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including working better together as Germany shares the presidency of the UN Security Council with France, what political agenda are both of them likely to follow? All that plus... A new report finds that 85% of Europeans are more likely to trust what they hear when it's on the radio. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are John Everard, the former UK diplomat and ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea, and the London Evening Standard columnist, Joy Lodico. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, we're going to play around with our running order because the Brexit story is moving as I speak. We'll bring you more updates, but for the moment... Let's take a look at what has been happening in Turkey, because the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has questioned the results of the country's municipal elections after important wins by opposition candidates. Although his ruling AKP party won most of the mayoral positions, it suffered heavy losses in major cities, including Istanbul, where the result is now being challenged. Well, the city has been in the hands of parties linked to Mr Erdogan since 1994 when he was elected as its mayor. Mr Erdogan claims there were voting irregularities, although that has been vehemently denied by the opposition. So, Joy, we know that uh, the Istanbul vote is, is being re- recounted, or rather the recount is on the cards. But even if the result does shore up the opposition victory, will Mr Erdogan accept it? Well, I think one of my favourite uh, pieces I read about this was somebody who was writing in favour of Erdogan, who said, well, look, this is proof that our elections aren't rigged, you know, he, and therefore there is some sort of democracy going on, that even though it was a minor loss. Um, it's, I mean, it is quite difficult to rig an election from a distance, and certainly from the opposition side. And... There's a big, a big turnout for this election. It's about 84%. Mm. And the opposition has been pushing and pushing and pushing. And the argument has been that Erdogan has been leading a kind of populist campaign, railing against the foreign interference in the country, mm. railing the against the Kurds. Um, but there is a kind of developed sort of social media, newspaper culture, intellectual culture there, that finally, I think, have enough people have moved into that sphere to say, well, actually, I think we've had enough mm. of this. We've ne- we can now see through that. If he gets the election result overturned, I think there'll be absolute howls of protest. I mean, you think uh, Remain Leave is bad in Britain. <laughs> uh, this is their first breakthrough in you know almost 20 years. But this is the interesting thing, isn't it, John, that, yes, he was using conventional media, which he largely controls, the TV stations and the newspapers, to really bang the message. So he had the coverage advantage. But if you want proof that you can't control the internet, 
Here is the evidence, and he also seems to have been feeding the opposition by clamping down on the intellectuals who he's branded as terrorists. Yes, uh, it wasn't just that uh, the the power of the internet. Uh, I think a lot of the result was down to people just being numb. They've heard so much um, AK propaganda for such a long time that they virtually switched off, and they looked around them and they saw all the the half-built uh, pharaonic construction projects, uh, bridges in the middle of nowhere, uh, houses demolished to make way for uh, high-rise apartment blocks that just never got built. And they said, enough. Uh, in answer to your first question, is Erdogan going to accept the results? He's already put posters all around Istanbul saying, thank you, Istanbul, smiling Erdogan and smiling AK mayor. I gather they've been. I gather they've been taken down hurriedly, or they've suddenly disappeared. Have they? Okay. They have. They may come back very suddenly. I mean, they may just be sitting mothballed in storage. <laughs> but as you said, Joy, the the, the, the turnout for this um, election was actually very high. It was quite substantial. If you take those results. Is there a discernible pattern that emerges in terms of age, the typical Erdogan supporter, and also the old town and country split? Well, what Erdogan was very keen on saying was that, in a sense, he was saying that of the districts, the districts, the people voted me in, even if the total number didn't come in my favour. And he's always talked about the people. And it's a, it's a term that you've now heard Trump use. It's now a term you now hear in Britain with the Brexit debate. And... There are now questions as to what these this peop, these people are. There's a very famous um, left-wing journalist from uh, Turkey called Ece Timelkaran who's just published a book called How to Lose a Country, which is essentially seven stages in how something moves from being a democracy to a dictatorship. Uh, and one of them is this idea that you are uh, only only real people really have legitimacy in how they speak. And I think. I, I haven't been to Turkey for a couple of years, but I'm imagining the media has now lost that 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 mystique of the people has now begun to fade, and the, the the people who've got some proper ideas about how to take the country forward are now coming back in charge. The other thing that's happened in the last year is uh, currency fluctuation. The Turkish lira mm. has nosedived. So while there was an election which returned Erdogan as president. The actual economics of the country has begun to change. Businesses are, are struggling with this uh, stagflation with exchange rates. And so while we might be while you might be talking to the people and talking about these kind of foreigners who are trying to disrupt us, at some point, the money in your pocket actually matters. Yeah, and, and that's the point, isn't it? Because has he actually accepted any of the responsibility for what's happened or is he blaming a deep state or foreigners interfering, outside powers trying to oust him? Has he, has he accepted any responsibility or is he kicking it in somebody else's direction. He has said, if there were mistakes, it is our duty to correct them, which I suppose comes halfway towards a recognition. But most of the time, no, he, he says it's all uh, foreign sabotage and uh, people trying to, 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 to mess Turkey around and bangs the big nationalist drum. Uh, Joy, of course, is quite right. Uh, businesses are feeling the, the chill wind. 20% inflation is difficult to deal with. Increasingly, though, it's biting at agriculture. And it's the countryside that uh, Erdogan has his, his, his big base. If agriculture starts to suffer really badly, then he faces not just a reversal in the major cities, he faces wipeout. Mm. So in terms of what he has to do next, obviously he has to win, win back that support. But in terms of the victors in this, how are they going to use their presence in the cities to push back against Erdogan? Can they do it? Because it does look a bit David and Goliath. Well, 
John sort of mentioned there's been press clampdowns. There's sort of all sorts of, you know, every, when the, the, the coup happened, there was a sort of mass arrest of anybody who was regarded as kind of a critic of the state or powerful enough um, to intervene. When the opposition has uh, actually got a, a mayor elected to Istanbul, what are you going to be able to do to curb those powers? Now, I think this is the kind of, this is the juncture in the road where, the, where we see whether Erdogan, who notionally runs, who runs a democracy, but having reduced its powers all the way through to the point when I don't believe there's even a prime minister anymore, he's the executive president. Mm. Um, what will he do now? At this point, if he tries to destabilise uh, Istanbul and its mayor, at that point we are heading towards a dictatorship. But if he is at that point checked... I think there may be some hope. I mean, this is being talked about as a revival of democracy in Turkey. We're about four years off from the centenary of it being declared a republic. And now, I think those next four years makes a very interesting journey. Mm, and, and, and yes, looking looking ahead at the four, to, to what, what lies ahead in the future, John, because look, one, one thing we do know from what has happened is that you had the democratic, the opposition, I should say, actually working together can they be relied upon to do this going forward or is there a danger that perhaps old rivalries will somehow creep in? No, they can't be relied upon to stay united. Uh, they were dealt uh, a good hand in many areas because the HDP, the, the, the Kurdish party, uh, refused to fill candidates so that the opposition vote wasn't split. Uh, and they've also uh, rallied around the Republicans, the single biggest opposition party. Uh, but they, they may start to split again. There again you shouldn't assume that AK stays united. I mean, AK is faction-ridden and querulous. And especially at a moment of stress like this, it too might start to wobble. So they could turn against him, potentially? Uh, I don't know if they turn against him. I think you might start to see an ebbing of support. You might start to see uh, rumours going around alternative leaders. Uh, you might even start to see uh, talk of perhaps uh, different parties emerging from out of the AK. That hasn't happened yet, but this is the kind of moment where such things do occur. Mm. And in terms of the international community, Joy, I mean, what has been the reaction? Because presumably, certainly in Germany, where you've got a very large uh, population with Turkish origins, they'd be quite happy about this, the possibility that he's not perhaps as invincible as he sold himself to be. Um, well, it's a sort of fractious uh, relationship. Uh, the, the, Turkey and Germany, in a sense, have to do business at all times, and they do economic business, and they do political business. Are they relieved to find that Erdogan is is not going to necessarily carry on, may not get through the next presidency? I think that would uh, delight them. I think uh, the US will be quietly pleased um, because Erdogan has become a sort of, uh, from being an ally, a NATO ally, has become a bit of an upstart. And there's a, a big story rumbling on about him buying an air, or Turkey buying a, a Russian air defence missile system that the US object to quite a lot. So I think, yes, his wings have been clipped. And I think... Um, that various people will be quietly pleased about that. I'm not sure they'll be staying that in public, though. Just as a footnote, uh, we, we talk all the time about Ankara and Istanbul. Um, uh, Ankara, a, a victory of, uh, I think, three percentage points. Istanbul, but perhaps a percentage point. In Izmir, he was crushed. A 20 percentage point victory by the opposition. Completely unquestionable. OK, then, let's return to the top story, which I actually flagged up. Thank you so much for your analysis there of what's been happening in Turkey, because some rather interesting things have been going on in the United Kingdom with our old friend Brexit, the story which never ends, because the Prime Minister, Theresa May, 
has been giving a conference, a press conference, on the steps of Downing Street. And uh, she basically says she understands that some people are so fed up that they want to leave with no deal. Perhaps a bit of an understatement, but she also supports leaving with one and says we need a short extension to Article 50. She's also said the debate cannot be allowed to drag on and adds that the Commons approach, that is the House of Commons, that their approach has not worked to reference there to the indicative votes that were held on Monday and indeed a few days ago. Now, Mrs May is offering to sit down with the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, to come up with a plan to leave with a deal. But she's also said that that deal must include her withdrawal agreement. Now, this is being drip-fed whilst we're on there. But um, can I just start off by getting the reaction of both of you to what what I've basically been saying about Mrs Mrs May's speech? What does any of that (laughs) solve? I mean, there's an MP who said, I need a new brick wall put into my uh, office because the one I've got at the moment has just been worn out by me hitting my head against it. I mean, I was expecting, we've been waiting for this statement uh, and we delayed this, expecting something seismic to happen. As in a snap general election? Well, a snap general election, a second referendum, a concession to Oliver Letwin, you know, half her cabinet resigning. Nothing. It's another one of those fudge statements. This We're absolute kind of critical moments you know the clock is we we're talking about it in terms of months and weeks and days we're into hours now and you're going to sit down with jeremy corbyn now after the original brexit day deadline has passed to discuss how to go forwards yeah, it does seem and you will come up if front, you do manage it? to uh, reach a deal with jeremy corbyn uh, which would be a major advance in poor sign aviation uh, you then have to present that bill to the eu who've already said that the only deal available is the one that uh, the the the, the Barney and, and and ollie negotiated between them well, the uh, thing, this is going nowhere well it is and it isn't because what corbyn will say is customs union and close regulatory alignment that's apart from customs union we're going to roughly be in that place anyway however it's been her deal has been rejected over and over again by her side because of Mm, three times three times because of the backstop but what drives me most crazy about Theresa may is that for somebody who keeps upholding the value of democracy from that one vote in 2016 she spends all her time avoiding any other form of democracy which includes a general election european elections or a confirmatory or any form of referendum following on from this. And this is yet another attempt to do so. And actually, you can see that Parliament, at the, the Commons at the moment, is having real trouble trying to agree on mm. any particular because strategy. Because it's been a, a control game that they've been playing with the Prime Minister in terms of driving this along because they can feel that we're getting absolutely nowhere. But let's just focus on one of the things that has come out of that pricey that I read a few moments ago. She says she supports leaving with a deal, obviously, and um, talking about having an extension of Article 50. Sorry, this is changing mm. as I'm looking at it. But you do have to ask yourself, what is a short extension as short as an extension that would be as short as possible those are the exact words and at the end of the day why would the eu agree to that because they're getting pretty fed up of what they regard as a fiasco that was masterly understatement (laughs) yes they are getting fed up why would they agree to it barnier has already said that an extension presents a number of problems to the eu Uh, how long is long we know that the eu is deeply reluctant to allow an extension beyond the 22nd of may 23rd of may of course is the european elections Uh, so uh, a longer extension the uk would have to participate in the elections uh, which you know makes a mockery of brexit altogether if you've you've come very close there uh, to, to, to walk the whole process back Except I think you might, I mean, depending on whether we're now talking about a short extension uh, into June, July, August, um, is, she, is she saying we're going to be holding elections? Right, well, this is changing okay. as, we, as we go along. So let me give you the latest that I have here on the screen. 
And that is that uh, she says that any plan both she and Jeremy Corbyn, who's the opposition leader, agreed upon, would then be put to MPs for approval with a view to it being taken to next week's European Council meeting. If she and Mr Corbyn cannot agree a unified approach then a series of options for the future relationship will be put to the House of Commons in a series of votes. Now, that she's sounds take, a little... She's taking back control of Parliament. Yes, but also it also smacks, it appears, of, it, of indicative voting, so, but where she's in the driving seat. <laughs> and Parliament has looked at a whole range of votes and voted against all of them. How is any of this going to work? I think I'm going to cry. I know, and the, and the, the reason Don't, I haven't got any tissues. The, okay. reason, <laughs> the reason we're having indicative votes pushed through by a man called Oliver Letwin is because we no longer trust the Prime Minister to put these things onto the agenda at the appropriate time. So if she goes back to Brussels and says, I'm sorry, I need another week to do my indicative votes. So they're saying, well, look, you could have done that in March. You know, It's been on the table for so long and you just keep trying to push through your deal and pushing away any other option. I think this is a disaster. But I do think we should have European elections, not just for the case of... Although, Demo- again, that's politically dangerous, though, and it's certainly not healthy from the, Europe, from the EU's perspective. They don't want Britain to take part I think in these should, elections. I think we should take part in these elections. We should do so wholeheartedly uh, because it is an act of democracy. And as long as we're paying, as long as we're there, we should have a seat at the table. And also, it will be a referendum of sorts. I would be highly surprised if there was not <coughs> a serious uh, remain... Um, uh, uh, a wall of candidates elected mm. to the EU and for the first time we'll pay attention to and, those and that's elections. A, and that's another and point, one of the involved. predictions that's been put through in terms of shaping um, the EU which emerges from these elections. But just to add another point to this, um, this, this statement that Mrs May has been making, she says she wants the process to be finished by the 22nd of May, addressing your point, Joy, about the EU elections so that the UK doesn't have to take part <laughs> in oh, those elections. But I mean, the thing is, this is this is chopping and changing with a frightening regularity. Do you do you think that at some point, given the time that we have, John, that maybe the EU just says, "Look, enough. We we just can't do this." Because one thing you can say is that whilst the United Kingdom has been dancing around in circles for about two and a half years, European Union states are twenty seven. They've been getting themselves ready, working on the basis that Britain could crash out. So they've, been, they've spent the time trying to fortify themselves as much as they can from any blowback. Yes, I think the EU is steeding itself for a, a crash out, as you rightly say. Uh, I think the EU would, would much prefer the UK to stay in, but the, given the way things are gone, I think patience is now exhausted. I think the 22nd of May is probably an absolute deadline. And if we don't get our ducks in a row by then, then one way or another, we will probably leave. I, I think our ducks have to be in a row by uh, April the 12th, and that really is it. Um, uh, in fact, it's probably April the 10th, to be honest. Mm. Which is when you've got the, the, the EU summit, I believe, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, we, we've been talking about the EU elections. She has been trying to avoid a snap general election. Is that still a possibility? The curveball out of the blue that could happen. What would that solve? It is, it is the whole. I mean, I my, my joke about this is: can we put it to a referendum as to whether we have to have a general election or not? Yeah, it doesn't solve a thing. All it does is confirm two parties who will, who will say, um, "Well, the country voted to leave," uh, and it, it's an easy way for her to kind of somehow confirm it. The EU elect, the European Parliament elections, I think, will confirm the opposite: that the country which had voted to leave now wants to stay, and that is the reason to keep avoiding them um, mm. and given timing now European elections would happen before a snap election okay. The problem with European Parliament elections is you might get a result that then contradicts the 2016 referendum uh, which will cause immense confusion If you are 
if you take the solution out of Parliament, then I think the only way to do it would be a second referendum, which, of course, has just been defeated again in Parliament. Mm. And, she, and she's made that perfectly clear in the famous red lines mm. with which she's imprisoned herself. They've turned out to be a bit sort of pinky, haven't they? <laughs> technically, a second referendum is not one of her red lines. It's not a negotiating red line. It's just one of the things she, she said she wouldn't do. Mm. She also said she wouldn't stand as leader of the Conservative Party next time an election came, so she would have to resign and therefore couldn't call an election until a new leader had been mm. installed. And if you, the EU are worried about one thing, it's about the next person could turning up from her. in Brussels being Boris Johnson. And that is the point at which they're sitting there thinking, if it's such chaos now, we might as well just cut them adrift. Uh, absolutely. I mean, look, that's, that's a final, the final thought before we close this subject down, I'd like to throw this to you, John, as a former diplomat. How do you think our handling of Brexit is going to impact on our reputation for diplomacy going forward. Are we now such a big joke that no one will take us seriously? Yes. <laughs> In a nutshell, can we recover our, our credibility? We can. Uh, I mean, forever is a very long time, but we it will take a long, hard climb. We have made complete fools of ourselves. OK, well, now shut down the Brexit subject. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, John Everard and Joy Lodico. Now, coming up next... Working better together as Germany shares the presidency of the UN Security Council with France, what political agenda are the two superpowers of European politics likely to follow? Get ready for a fresh new look. We've moved our printing from the UK to Germany. You'll notice the pictures are crisper and the print is sharper. In this fashion-forward issue, we meet the president of Taiwan as she gears up for the 2020 election and hop on a Finnish icebreaker. We take stock of the business of retail in our annual survey, fly around the world to meet the documentary filmmakers of the moment, and review the last column, reminding us of the importance of a free press. We cross bridges and sit down with Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, visit a Spanish town famous for its sugary treats, and bring you the latest fashion news from around the world in our style directory. Plus, an interview with Lueve's creative director, Jonathan Anderson. Further along, we show you what not to miss in Madrid, check in on the latest hotel openings, and delve deep into everything Texas has to offer. It's a whirlwind tour around the world, printed in Germany. Monocle's April issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. with me are John Everard and Joy Lodico. Now, France and Germany will share the UN Security Council's rotating presidency. Both countries, who've each occupied the chair for a month, have agreed to dovetail these arrangements into the Security Council's first dual presidency. Well, the move, which has been described as a symbol of their closeness, is part of the Treaty of Aachen, which was signed 56 years after the French leader Charles de Gaulle and his German counterpart Comrade Adenauer signed the Elysee Treaty for post-war reconciliation. So given that potted history, Joy, how much of a game-changer does this latest move represent for Franco-German relations? Well, it's sort of actually rather lovely to watch the relationship of Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel. It's a more unlikely couple, you wouldn't think, but the two of them seem to have danced incredibly well over the last two years or so to actually try and actually forge uh, a relationship between these two kind of nations, one of which is built on, you know, manufacturing, one of which is built on agriculture, but with so many kind of communalities between the two of them. And this is, you know, this has got the Arkan Treaty as things about, you know, 
learning each side learning each other's language mm. the territories on the board and how they get looked after you know so it's become a kind of you know we talk about the kind of Europe, the EU having this kind of inner zone but the actual real heart of it now has become France and Germany it's an incredibly powerful alliance it also at some point shows this idea that Germany can begin to step up to an international plate again having had 70 years sort of sitting rather quietly sitting back and actually having to follow mm. other people's leads on questions of defence and security. But it, it's a dual presidency, John, but is it really the French who are going to be in the driving seat on this? Because you know, they are permanent members of the UN Security Council. They're part of the, the five, aren't they? They're part of the five. The French are the ones with all the experience and uh, they, and they, as you say, they, they've, they've been around much longer than the Germans. Uh, this, there is a beautiful friendship between uh, the French and the Germans at the moment. This is not part of it. What has happened is that the Germans, uh, late last year, I think it was, uh, went to the French and said, it is quite wrong that you, as one nation, should have a seat on the Security Council. This should be a European Union seat. And the French, of course, screamed and said non in all <laughs> kinds of ways. And after much sort of howling matches behind closed doors, they've worked out this compromise uh, that this is not a European Union seat, but it is a kind of Franco-German seat for, for, the, for the duration of the presidency. A rather uneasy compromise and one that's unlikely to satisfy Germany for the long term, but might keep the Germans quiet just for now. But there are only so many seats at the top and um, there are other contenders all the time coming in. So Japan would like a seat, India would like a seat. I'm not sure Brazil, we would welcome Brazil at the moment, but Brazil <laughs> would like a seat. So the idea that Germany is destined to have a seat, um, surely is, you know, if, if France has got one, why should, it, why should another European state have one? Absolutely. Everybody agrees that the Security Council needs reform, but nobody can agree on what that reform should look like. Yes, the Japanese have got a strong case uh, for a seat. The Chinese would die in the last ditch before that ever happened. Uh, Brazil, can you see the Argentines and the Mexicans ever letting that go forward? The Nigerians and South Africans keep saying that they should have a, a permanent African seat, but not the other one. And Germany, you know, uh, you, you can make a case, I think, for an EU seat, but just Germany alone is a bit weak. We've been talking about this for how many decades now? And each time uh, we come to uh, an agreement to disagree, it's got to the stage where the United Kingdom has said repeatedly that it is quite happy to step aside, uh, give up its permanent seat, if there is thoroughgoing uh, Security Council reform, in the secure knowledge that this simply is never going to happen. Not just yet, not just yet. But, I mean, look, outside the United Nations, Joy, how is this relationship between Germany and France likely to translate itself, in other words, in the European Union? Because we know, for example, that the Italians, they've been griping a lot about the Germans, the Greeks have been griping for whatever reason. And even in France itself, you've had Marine Le Pen and various others who've basically been saying, well, yeah, signing the Treaty of Aachen, it basically made France somehow a vassal state yeah. to, to the Germans. And, you know, this, this is wrong. But I mean, how will the, the rest of the EU see this? Will some people see this as the model for where perhaps the family should be going or are they going to be a bit worried about this um, ex extraordinary closeness between the two powers? Um, I think there's going to be further anxiety because it does feel at the moment that although there's kind of all sorts of, you know, uh, weighted voting systems all the way across the EU, the kind of collection of power between France and Germany um, is what no other country particularly wants because they then can't get into the conversation. And in fact, the Dutch used to say, 
it was wonderful having the British at the table because they could sort of then triangulate the French-German conversation to include another party and therefore everybody else could find, could find in that trio somebody to attach themselves to. I mean, the other point is Germany continues to be, uh, you know, the industrial giant of um, Europe. Europe's, you know, ticking along quite well at the moment. It's not doing too badly. Um, but does it just give it more force and gravitas? OK, so a slight reference there to Brexit without mentioning it by name. But look, time is running tight. But in that little window that we have, it seems that most of us are more likely to trust what we hear on the radio than information that comes to us from other sources. A report by the European Broadcasting Union claims that 85% of Europeans, that's the same as a year ago, believe what they hear on their radios. The same can't be said, however, for social media and the internet, where trust has fallen consistently in the past five years. John, does that surprise you at all? No, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad that uh, the 85% has held up. I mean, I, I think in general, the quality of European radio is very high. We moan about it from time to time, but uh, the, the uh, things that people say on there are generally fact-checked, and if you come up with something completely stupid, uh, as I well know, you're, you're held up uh, by other contributors uh, telling you that you've got it wrong. Uh, it's a good medium, and it, it is generally reliable. Uh, I have long ago given up following anybody on, on Twitter. I, I think it's just so polluted now with so much junk that I just don't want to spend the time on it. The other thing about radio is that it's instantly switchable. I mean, if I tune into a programme that I decide isn't really that interesting, press of a button, instant gratification, and go into somebody else. It's wonderful. I hope you don't do that to Midori House, but Joy, <laughs> I mean, look, does this, does this mean, given this love we have for radio, finally, that um, perhaps social media... Is, is dead as a source, the first, the first port of call. Well, I think there are two things. There are two things about radio. Number one is you can hear somebody's voice, so you actually know the person who is speaking it in a way that actually written documents now, you've got no idea who's writing them, and they're churned out um, by factories. The second is, well done you, John, for turning off Twitter. But for those of who don't turn off Twitter, our eyes, I mean, we must be all reading the equivalent of a novel in every single day when we're reading Twitter, and it's actually quite exhausting. And so... And at some point, you can no longer kind of calculate what is right and what is wrong. So actually listening to the radio, listening to one line of conversation is, you know, incredibly calming. And uh, I think you can at that point judge whether you trust it or not. OK, we'll leave it there because we've now, we've now reached the end of today's show. My thanks there to John Everard and Joy Lodico. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Marbuli, and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next and at 1900 hours, it is Monaco on Design with Josh Fer- Good night.